and welcome back to Things Are Going Great For Me, a podcast about the arts and the entertainment business. My name is Jay Claude Deering. I'm an actor and a comedian. If you're new here, welcome. Pull up a chair and get comfortable because we want you all to enjoy yourselves. Or like I said last week, take me with you when you go to vote. Whether you're dropping off your ballot or voting early in person, I'd love to be part of that important moment for you. On each episode of this series, you'll hear from huge movie stars, big TV stars, and even some bright, shining Broadway stars, as well as second guest interviews with exciting up-and-coming comics and actors and established producers, authors, and writers. We banked all the episodes, which also makes this series a time capsule of events that occurred throughout an historic summer. You can follow me, your host, at Deering on both Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow our show handles on Twitter and Instagram at Things Are Going Great For Me. There you'll find our link tree that has links for our email list and Patreon. We've got fancy special items up on our Patreon right now. We've uploaded a few additional minutes from my interview with movie star Chris Pine from back in April of this year. Pine reflected on the pause the movie industry was about to take with the U.S. starting to shut down businesses and life as we knew it. He also talks about shooting a pandemic movie early in his career called Carriers. And for all you Brooklyn Nine-Nine fans, we've also uploaded 20 additional minutes from my interview with Melissa Fumero. We talk about some of our memories from college, our favorite acting teachers. Melissa also talks about giving birth to her second son right at the beginning of a global pandemic. We've also added a mini audio series to the Patreon called The Quarpod, in which I ask our guests Chantel Tui, Christine Woods, and Sarah Paxson about the quarantine and how it's changing life in Hollywood in the time of corona. You can check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash things are going great for me. Here comes the rate and subscribe part. If you like any of what you hear today, please do us a big kindness. Subscribe to the show. Leave us a nice comment. Tell your aunt about us. Give us those five stars wherever you're getting your podcast from today. Hey, Apple Podcast peeps. We see you, Spotify folks. Hey now, Stitcher fam. What's up, you freaky pocket casts, cats? Hey, Breaker brethren and sistren. Salutations, Radio Public people. Hello, you overcast outroverts. Welcome to the party, Google Podcasters. We love you all equally, and we hope you love what you hear, and we want to keep bringing you new episodes of this show. And by the way, we're thrilled to be sponsored for this limited series by Icelandic Glacial, the purest-tasting water on Earth, sourced from the legendary Ulfus Spring in Iceland, naturally filtered through ancient lava rock, and certified carbon-neutral for both product and operation. You are what you drink. Be a force of nature. Icelandic Glacial, natural spring water, sourced from Iceland. Available on Amazon, IcelandicGlacial.com, and a retailer near you. This episode may be my personal favorite, and it's a long one, but it's a really good one. Today's first guest is Ryder Doyle. Ryder is a SAG-nominated actor for Best Comedy Ensemble for his role as Nick Nickleby on the Peabody Award-winning and multiple Emmy Award-winning HBO comedy, Barry. He's also the creator and director of Netflix's dark comedy series, Bonding. Ryder talks about making his Broadway debut. He also talks about his audition for Barry, our work together at the renowned Williamstown Theatre Festival, and the process of selling two different TV series. Ryder is hilarious and brilliant and wonderfully candid. I'll be speaking with him in a few minutes. And a little bit later, you'll also get my interview with Elna Baker. Elna is a celebrated comedian, author, and longtime producer of the Pulitzer Prize-winning landmark radio series, This American Life. We talk about her producing and storytelling work on This American Life and what she looks for in a story, her upbringing in the Mormon faith, her inspiring journey with self-love and body positivity. She's also the first person on this series who is a survivor of COVID-19. I've known Elna since the eighth grade. She's one of my best friends. Stick around. You're not going to want to miss it. Joining me again today is my producer and co-host, Winston Carter. How you doing, man? How's How's life? 
I'm good, man. Um, I'm very. I feel as your friend, like I don't do enough now, based on uh, you on this episode. What do you mean? Based on this, I'm like, oh man, oh boy. I knew Claude had like like well-to-do friends, but like, oh, I'm not doing enough. I'm like, I have to like up my friend resume. Oh well, yeah, no, I I hear I hear what you're saying. I mean, some some maybe well to do, some maybe are not, but they are all very accomplished. Yeah, mm-hmm. these mm-hmm. these two folks are very they're both brilliant, and um, I I'm completely in awe of their accomplishments. Um, they're also really fun in their interviews. Yes, they are. This is about as candid and fun in terms of interviews as we've had. Um, so you know. With Barry, are you a big Barry fan? I am. I'm a bear. I'm a bearhead. <laughs> That's what we call ourselves. We call ourselves bearheads. Okay. Um, did you discover yeah, I love it? Barry. Did you discover it right away, or was it a show that pe- you had to hear it from some people first? No, I watched it. I watched season one, and then uh, I was like, season one, I dug because I'm a Bill Hader's a, um, uh, you know, Bill Hader's a uh, uh, Oklahoma Tulsa specifically. So, oh yeah, those that's of us right. Yeah, from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Like, I think he went. My brother and him like had some minor run in because he went to like the like. There's only a couple big private schools, and I think he went to the other one that I didn't go to, but much further ahead of me. Um, so like, yeah, I've had some run-ins with him, and he's worked with some people I've worked with, like Mark Potts. So I was like, oh, he's got a show. Ooh, I want to check it out. And then I was like, season one, I, was, I dug, but then ugh, season two. It's just insane. Chef's kiss. Perfect. Did you like, um, have you listened to any of Elna's stuff on This American Life? I, I know that, uh, yeah. you know, it, her her stuff is so good on there. I don't know if you got a chance to listen to any of it. I listened to a little bit of it. I also didn't want to. It's This is a weird thing that I try not to do, whereas, like, uh, people who I might tangentially know. So, like, this is, like, a real friend of yours. So, I'm, like, I know yeah. how the odds of me ever meeting this person are very slim. But in the off chance that I do, I don't want to have listened to a ton of them talking about stuff and know too much about them. It makes me very uncomfortable, if that makes sense. You mean if you eventually met Elna? It would it would make you uncomfortable if you knew too much yeah, about her I'd be life? Like, I would absolutely bring up, like, I know this about you. It would be terrible. You would? <laughs> You'd immediately uh, bring probably. up. I know this uh, very personal thing about you. Is that how you are when you meet uh, celebrities? Because t- I would assume you know things about those people, right? I, yeah, well, I'm not great at meeting celebrities. I've, I've, I have not met many. I'm, I'm not great at I it. I've met. Yeah, I'm not great at it either. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I met Jason Reitman once and it was like borderline the most embarrassing moment of my life. Oh, do tell. Uh, it was just like, uh, I went and saw a, a screening of, um, Oh God! Uh, the something Jeff. What's that? Jeff who lives at home. Okay. And he produced that movie, and it was at. And we were walking out at the same time. My girlfriend was there, uh, Erica, and we're walking out. Uh, and I'm like a huge. At the time, was a huge fan. I mean, he makes good movies, but at the time, he was like just coming off of Up in the Air, uh, which was like I loved that movie. And we're walking out of the of the of the Chinese theater at the same time, and we're kind of walking alone. And I was like, Hey, man, I don't do this, but like, I just have to tell you, like, uh, I'm a big fan, and this is. Once you hear this, you'll learn that I've created a rule based on this interaction. And he was like, oh, hey, man, what, what, that was, thank you so much. And I was like, cool, great, 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 yeah. Yeah, and you produced this? I, like, was carrying on this. He was like, oh, yeah, what'd you think of this? What'd you think of the movie? And my response was, you know, they, they have a style, you, you know. And then he went, 
all right, man, you have a good day and walked off. Oh and I was like, my God. So you, you gave him, you, uh, you opened with like kind of a qualifier instead of like a, not even a platitude a qual- and he read it just, right away. Yeah. Just like, I don't have an answer for you. <laughs> I wasn't planning. So now when I do see someone famous who I'm like, I have something to say to them. Cause either they're like, I saw Thomas Sadowski once on the street and I was just like, Hey, I really like your work. Have a good day. And they're like, all right, you too. And then you, like, like, cause what you, that's the way to do I it. I think there's, yeah, you have to know that like what I'm doing here is getting something for me and I'm going to put as little onus on you for this interaction as possible. Right. I'm say a thing. It's going to be complimentary. So you'll feel, you'll be like, feel good. Cause who doesn't like having a compliment? And then I'm immediately going to leave. I'm immediately getting, giving you an out a verbal and physical out. Yeah. So you, there's no extra time. All right, folks. Well, as always, <laughs> you've been very patient with us. We're going to keep this one quick today. Without further ado, here now is the hugely talented and extremely charming writer, Doyle. I strangely think that I'm still 21 and, and really fighting for it. I, I've always thought of myself as an underdog, which is maybe insane, but I, it's been a very helpful way for me to think about um, my life and my career as someone who is like um, uh, ambitious and I think has tried very hard to do things um, with a you know, with the, with good intentions, but also as, as uh, trying to, you know, really make something and do something. And I know that we all, you know, in this particular industry think and feel those types of things. And and we certainly started together. Um, And it's, um, it's wild to, to think of how long it's been since even we had done Williamstown together. Um, But uh, I guess I just haven't thought it in terms of my 20s and my 30s. When I was 26, I made my Broadway debut, and it that show closed two weeks later. Yeah, and and now I think about it, and I'm like, oh my god, that was that's actually great because I don't think I could have, I don't think I wanted to do that show for a year. Huh. You know, even though I really loved it, um, it was like a very taxing because I'd never done a Broadway show before and I didn't realize I got my equity card doing it. Um, so I didn't realize that every time that you moved a table that you would have to do it every night and they like paid you an extra $10 or whatever equity does if you like move some furniture and I volunteer for a ta- every what, Every what ta- I don't understand. Sorry. What, what are you? What are you? What are you talking about? I know like you're talking you, about this show, Enron the, mu- uh, Enron the Musical, right? It wasn't technically a musical, but there was some um, music in it. Okay. What was it called? Um, it was just called Enron. <laughs> it was just called Enron. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, that's funny. And so, Catchy, but it had babe. done. This show did well over in the UK, right? Oh, it did. Un- yeah, it did unbelievably well. I mean, it was a great. It's a uh, it's a beautifully written play by Lucy Preble, who's maybe one of the smartest people I've yeah. ever met. Um, and uh, she writes for Succession now, and she writes plays, right. and she's incredible. Um, and directed by Rupert Gould, who I think is also a, a genius man. And uh, it, it it was a, a satire commentary on on 
on America, on the financial system, on capitalism, and uh, right at, at the beginning of a recession. I don't think really anyone wanted to see that in the U.S., um, which was huh. fine. I mean, like, listen, I was I was thrilled to be in it, and I'm thrilled to have done it. But why were you moving? Ta- what do you mean you were moving tables? Oh, well, when you when you move, I, I don't really know how this works because again, I got my equity card, and I don't know shit about anything. So when I, so apparently when you move like in a scene change, if you move a particular object during a scene, you get like a little pay bump. Oh, And so I volunteered to move every chair and every table. (laughs) Just to make your, (laughs) just to make your New York rent. And I got to tell you, I was exhausted. (laughs) two weeks in two weeks into doing the show i was like i cannot believe that i gave myself this track in the show yeah what an idiot and i think everyone else in the cast was snickering behind a curtain being like i can't believe he volunteered for all that shit well i think what's interesting is that like for you and i when we, we you know we got our sort of theater background and our 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 education and some of those credentials and it's like but most of the time we're never doing more than a month long or two month long run yeah somewhere regionally off off broadway even off broadway um and then when you get to if you do a broadway show i mean you hear stories constantly about people who just get burned out because they're doing eight shows a week for a year (laughs) for longer i mean didn't they say isn't it famous that like lin-manuel miranda's uh understudy did more performances of hamilton than he did i mean i guess that's not shocking but i think in the within the first year maybe that it was on broadway am i wrong Oh, I, I I didn't know that. I did see his understudy, who I thought was very wonderful, Javier. Yeah, yeah, I thought he was incredible. We've talked about him on this on this series too. Yeah. So you, so you and I, we we know each other originally from this regional theater, Summerstock, uh, uh, place called Williamstown, Massachusetts. Yes. Yes. And. Um, <laughs> gosh, I mean, we had a, such a fun summer. I feel like at Williamstown, we were all smoking cigarettes and getting hammered every night on cheap beer and cheap whiskey. Were you, yeah. were you smoking cigarettes too? Yes. Do you still? Occasionally. Okay. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. I pick it, I pick it up and put it down. I, I think that there's, um, I, I now have built, uh, some healthy restraint. I don't, I don't think I had any restraint then. Um, but I don't yeah. think we really needed to, but, um, right. yeah. I'm from New Orleans, so I got all that stuff deep inside of me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's hard to shake it. Yeah. Are you drinking still? Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Luckily, I mean, I would say luckily the, 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 the Irish and New Orleansness didn't equal alcoholism. Um, but I, when I, when I drink, I usually do the thing that I really want to do, which is eat everything in my fridge. So that's right. I remember someone once said to me, like, F, like, oh, my God, at 5 p.m., aren't you longing for a drink? Like, can't you just wait to have your first drink? And I was like, I can't wait to eat a hot dog. Like, that's what I really think about. Do you is this is it this is it this thing that we I mean, I I'm not very well studied in 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 things that deal with like addiction, but I do. I, I, I absolutely have compulsive behavior. It's if it's not food. If it's not like uh, substances, it's I've noticed mm. it's my f- phone. Are you getting the phone thing too? Oh my god! I mean, you know, I'm I'm yeah. 
Yeah. Doesn't I'm, it fuck you up when you go down a wormhole on your phone and you discover like 10 people you didn't know about but are mutual friends with all everybody that you know and are doing so much better <laughs> than you are? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm a single gay man, so I, I'm, people often are using their phones for, you know, um, meeting other people da, 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 da. I don't have any I don't have any of the sex apps on my phone not that I um not not that I wouldn't or don't I just don't think it's very sexy to like um just meet someone without knowing them I sort of like the the will they won't they that's kind of like the sexier part of it for me like meeting someone somewhere um yeah. which which is all to say that I really just haven't had any sex in the pandemic if that's <laughs> that's what I'm that's what I'm moving toward um, but my phone, yeah, I think Instagram, things like that are places of where, you know, you can just fall down the rabbit hole of who, this person, you know, who's this person? Oh my God, look at them now. I mean, like, I'm like staring at your kids on the yeah. internet. I don't even know you have kids. Yeah. Too. And now I'm, can... now I'm, now I'm deeply involved in your family. <laughs> yeah, I know. There, there was a time when I didn't think I would post photos of my kids at all, um, for privacy reasons. And then I don't know, like it just, you, when you become a parent, it, it's, it's, um, it's hard not to like, I've, I, I probably have on my phone now about 5,000 photos of mostly my family and mm -hmm. it's overwhelming. And I think that, you know, and none of them can, you can, you can't delete any of them. So, because you, you don't know which of these is like, going to be that photo that you wanted to see again when you're an old older person and your kids mm. like don't talk to you anymore um God. so i so i think like <laughs> you know there is you get this overwhelming feeling of where you're like people need to see this people people need to see how beautiful this moment is or how important this moment is to me and then mm. so it's yeah you end up doing a lot of sharing of kids photos and you know then we'll get a dog, and then it'll be all dog photos. I guess will be the next thing. Um, well, do dogs and kids, you know, dogs yeah. and kids. I think you've got it. That's that's the real magic formula for Instagram: dogs and kids, right? <laughs> yes, right. Somebody I'll did ask come, me I'll once, I'll come like, over to your house to use your dogs and your dogs and your kids to like get more likes on my photos. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Somebody did ask me about that once. They were like, "Do you post photos of like your your kid for? Is like, are you fine? Do you get a lot of likes when you do that?" And um, you, you, I think people do when they post that first photo of like, oh, we just had a kid and it, your f whole phone lights up. Um, you, you they, of course, like the the endorphins are, are firing on all cylinders. But you right. I think when we boil you all, you know what that feels like, probably more so when you have a big career success and everybody is jumping on to which you congratulations. And I think like those moments are. um I mean, they, it just, it, it feels nice that people are sharing in that moment with you. It allows you to hold on to those moments a little bit longer in a world in which it's very hard to hold on to a feeling of happiness. Would you agree? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I think I heard it once said that the minute that you think that you're happy, happiness goes away. Yeah. That's what drugs are for. Right. Drugs. I think like they hold you in that moment. They keep you present. Um, this is a pro drug, uh, podcast. Yeah, what Very... kind of drugs are, what drugs are we talking about? I mean, uh, and who's your doctor? 
<laughs> I'm not that I'm not that crazy. I mean, for me, it's mostly weed and it's occasionally like mushrooms, but like that's kind yeah. of it or or having a drink like that's pretty much it. Um, mushrooms, Molly, occasionally Molly. That, I, that is, I are the that kids still time. calling it Molly? Is that is that the thing now? Is what the thing? I, are the kids still calling it Molly? What are we? I mean, I don't know. Is it, have we moved on from that name? I don't know. I couldn't tell you. I did do that okay. one time. I did it in classically the wrong way, fashion, the wrong fashion. I was like with, I had moved to LA. I was with a group of people at a gym that I was working at. I was working at Crunch Fitness, folding Okay. Towels. Okay. And I went out with a group of those folks and didn't really know anybody. And I, except for one guy who was a friend of mine who had ecstasy. And I, we, I took one pill and then immediately, as I started to feel it, looked around and was like, oh, I don't know anybody here and I'm feeling weird. So I went right. to the bathroom, thought I was going to throw up, didn't. And then I paid for like an L.A. cab home to the where I was living in the valley. And this was before Uber. So it was like a $60 cab for a 20 oh minute God. cab ride. And then I just stared at my face in the mirror for like an hour and a half and went to bed. <laughs> and did you end up really liking your face? I mean, anytime you're on a drug and you're looking at your face, like, I I don't know that I've ever loved my face. I think I have moments where I see myself in the mirror and, I, and I'll start talking to myself when I'm high. Do you do that? Yeah. Yes. Sure. Yes. What will you I say mean, I, to yourself? I think I talk to myself all the time. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah. I don't really do that as much. I will talk to myself in fragments, and it's usually something like, you stupid, stupid fucking idiot. It's a, it's like that. And then nothing, but I don't like, I don't say like, I got to get up now and brush my teeth. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, that's not what I'm doing either. I don't know who you think <laughs> is doing that, but I don't think anyone's doing that. <laughs> Why am I making a musical out of every play yeah, you've done and I, now out I, of your life? You know, I don't know. I just think you associate like homosexuality with musicals, I guess, which is just, that's your bigotry. I'm going to leave that with you. No, I love, I, <laughs> I, I majored in, I got, I've talked about it too much on this series. I talk, I, I promote musical theater a lot on here because I, I did it in college and. Did continue. you talk to Chris Pine about musical theater? No, but you know what? That summer, the when I was an apprentice with Chris Pine at, um, in 2002 at Williamstown, mm -hmm. We we threw together uh, apprentices threw together a chorus line and we fucking threw it together in like two days. Learned all the music. Original I, choreo. I did some fucking tap dancing and like wow. I said, and it was a shit show. Uh, but we did it like in Upper Greylock. Is that what it's called, where the cafeteria is? Yeah. So we we put it on everybody. We everybody in the cast was drunk. Everybody in the audience was drunk. And like, I did my little dumb number and pine did come up at the end. and was like, Deering. He was like, that was fucking phenomenal, man. <laughs> and I just, I felt really in, in immediately in that moment, I was like, Oh God, I like, this was, this was probably really bad. Yeah, no, this is your, I mean, also this is your calling. I mean, you didn't, didn't stop you. <laughs> um, stop me. how many summers did you do Williamstown? I just did, Two. I did my apprentice year. I I auditioned a, a couple times to get back in. Oh. Um, I had a an audition for for a play that was going up that I did like a monologue from 
Long Day's Journey into Night. And I think I did it a little too convincingly with the maybe the coughing <laughs> at the end because I think they were genuinely worried for me because I was doing Edmund oh, wow. and I think I really sold the consumption at the end. And so, <laughs> like I don't I think Amanda Charlton said something to me like, I don't know. She was like, we, I think we worried for you. <laughs> oh, my God. That sounds very hurt. Yeah. So I didn't get back in that year, but I th- it was the next year. And I do remember saying to I, uh, saying to Amanda that year um, and maybe Steven, I think I remember saying, like, I need to get out of L.A., please. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I need yeah. a break. And I, they they let me in that year. Um, and that's when you and I met. Um, yeah. How about you? How many years? How many seasons did you do there? I did. I did three. I think we were do. I think we did my first one together and then I did two more after that maybe I'm mistaken I might have I think I was supposed to go back for that following year maybe with you and Steve O'Reilly and Heather Lind right right I I think I I think I got in but I had booked like a Shonda Rhimes pilot in a a, sort of like a little recurring co-star role and everybody on that show she was executive producing it so it was I don't think it was her it wasn't like her, she I don't think she created it, but she was exact producing it. But anyway, right. everybody on that show was like, well, this show is going to go for 10 years. Right. Yeah. 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 Oh, God. That and so the... I think I said, like, I think I said to the folks at Williamson, I was like, I, I like this may get picked up in June. And I, I like I wouldn't want to leave halfway through. And so and then, of course, the show didn't it didn't it did not get picked up. Of course, uh, as is uh, as is the way. Um, but yeah, I did, I did three years. I auditioned the first time I auditioned, I got in, which was great. And and I and having said that out loud, I and I realized that that is a dumb thing to say out loud. <laughs> um, but I but I didn't know much about it. I guess is what I'm trying to infer is that I wasn't an apprentice. Um, I didn't really know much about it. I just heard um, that this is what you're supposed to do in the summer to meet other professionals to keep working to or to find yeah. work um and so i auditioned to be a nonic and i got in and then i did it for two summers after that and I, honestly it, cha- it changed my entire life and i'm so yeah. grateful to amanda charlton and and yeah. roger reese rest in peace and nikki martin rest in peace for giving me these opportunities absolutely i i couldn't agree more it is a wonderful place and people should if they're interested should apply um uh they when are auditions usually in december yeah, I guess so. They must be maybe January. I don't. I actually don't remember. I remember like well, that's... look it up online, kids. Yeah, wtfestival.org, um, yeah. as I recall. So you play. You currently play Nick on uh, the HBO show Barry, and you're now mm-hmm. a SAG Award nominated actor for best ensemble in a comedy series. <laughs> Congratulations! I'm, I'm sure people were voting just for me when that was happening. <laughs> <laughs> the show has received 30 primetime Emmy nominations. Jesus Christ. Both mm. Bill Hader and Henry Winkler have won Emmys. I think Bill Hader has won two, right? Yeah. Yes. For yes, their yes, yes. portrayals of Barry Berkman and Gene Cousinow, respectively. The tone of the show is very specific, and you would think it might be almost impossible to pull it off, but you all do it very masterfully. Was it clear to everybody that they had a hit show on their hands? Was that the vibe in the beginning? I definitely thought when we filmed the pilot that we were um, making something different. So, and I think that different is a good word for it because I think often, like you were saying with your, like, oh my God, this could run for 10 years or da 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 da. I thought this is really uh, strange and what they're doing is so specific. And um, 
it, either people are really going to love it or I don't think that it will ever see the light of day. But it felt very special to me and not special. And I think to everyone who was working on it. But I think that had a lot to do with um, Bill and Alec Berg, our other showrunner uh, yeah. and writer of the show. They um, they cast uh, everyone on the show and um, they said, listen, you if you can think of a better joke, if you can think of a better thing to say, if you can think of something to do, um, we we want that. Yeah. And it's not like an it's not like an improvathon. We do rehearsals. Bill loves to rehearse because of SNL, and um, and the rehearsals are really free form. It's like here's the script, and now let's put the script down and see what happens. And it's just a bunch of really game, really expert uh, comic actors and no one's trying to be the funniest person in the room everyone's trying to give um the the story some weight while also at the same time being funny so i just it's it, it's been an incredible experience to work on and i i'm i'm so grateful i tried for a million years to get on an hbo show and then the minute i was like i quit acting and i don't want to do this anymore i went to one audition and i got this job and i'm just it made me fall in love with the very thing that i do that's so cool what was so what tell me a little more about like the audition were you improvising in the audition yeah so i uh i in full disclosure i was at the time selling uh trying to sell this show bonding which is now on netflix um and i in that same day i had a meeting for bonding and i had just done an episode of girls that had aired on hbo and the casting directors of barry I don't know how it all happened, but um, they were like, they'd love you to come in for one of the, the uh, of Barry's classmates. And I didn't have a lot of time and maybe was being lazy and didn't read the script. And in the car, I saw when I was trying to learn the lines before the audition, I saw that they were composite sides, which I guess maybe there's a different term for it, but it just means that the the characters in the pilot are so small that you just read all of the male classmate characters. So there was a character named Antonio. There was another guy. So it was really choose your own adventure. And the guy, Antonio, was a night cop. And I was like, I'm never going to get the role of Antonio the night cop. So I might as well just come at it from my angle, which is a gay one. And so (laughs) I walked in, I was like, hello, I'm Antonio, I'm an ICOP, you know, I just sort of like, did all the lines as they were, but just um, played it a little slightly fey, slightly played up that part of myself. And um, then they asked me, oh, by the way, it was just for it was the casting director's assistant. And it was just on tape. And she asked me to then improv in this whatever character I had just made up. And I improved um, about my struggles in Los Angeles. And at the very end, as a twist, I said that my girlfriend was an actress, too. So I sort of played uh, Faye this whole time. And then at the end, told everyone. Oh, I okay, had a gotcha. All right. And you, a little sneak surprise. At the yeah, end. a little sneak attack at the end. Yeah. And, um, I knew I had done well. I left and I called my agent and I said, Hey, I think I did a good job. So you should just follow up with that. But it was for the casting assistant, you know, so I didn't really know how far I was going to get there. And two weeks later, I got a call from uh, everyone saying that I had gotten the job. Oh my God. I never, really? It was one of those. Yeah. It was just yeah, I never, on tape I never, and you booked it. Yeah, I never met Bill. I never met Alec. I I I met the casting director in passing as I was leaving. 
Um, and that was it. So the first day I met everyone was to walk into the reading and they had made a character based on my improv and his name was Nick. Oh and, uh, we cut out the part about me being, um, having a girlfriend, but all of those things, but you kept the just... night cop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Someone else, someone else got to be the night cop. Um, but they just sort of, um, tailor made the thing to my improv. I think I said it was Florida. Then I said I was from Florida. They put that in the show, like That's all great. these sorts of things. So it was really cool. It felt like they really cared and were listening. And I was there because they, you know, saw something in me and i think for you know i've had a lot of great opportunities and i feel very very lucky but rarely do you walk in and people who you think of as like comedy legends i mean alec berg was one of the yeah. you know one of the writers of seinfeld and bill Hader is bill Hader, and you're there with henry winkler and steven root and all these incredible actors and they're like writer i don't know can you think of anything funnier to say and i'm like sure you know it, it's it's been it, it's been a real blessing i'm, I'm so it, that sounds cheesy, but it's true. Yeah, and you know, now you're all on your. You've been renewed for third season, and yeah. When, so what's the what's happening with that right now? Well, we were supposed to start um, in April, I think April. And um, what year is it now? <laughs> hmm. um, and so I don't think we're starting until 2021. But there's no real start date for us. But um, I, I'm not really sure what what will happen but we'll definitely do a third season of the show i think they're just being very careful as they should be as they should be yeah that show is definitely coming back um i would be i would stake my entire career no i'm not gonna stake my career on anything um (laughs) i need i need the whatever i have um yeah you've staked your life on your career so let's let's keep your career in like a safe bin you know (laughs) So you, but so before you wrote bonding, and I want to talk about that. You wrote this other series that was um, that you did with Refinery Twenty Nine when they were just mm-hmm. sort of starting to release projects, and it was called The Walker. Am I correct? Mm-hmm. Correct. You are correct. Yeah. And this was about a gay best friend for hire. Yes, yes, yes. I love. Mo- I like monetizing. Um, you know. Um, you know, monetizing strange things as as a job. Um, I think that's a <laughs> okay. that's a fun angle. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. I, I based on I have a lot of best girlfriends, and um, I after doing Enron had uh, I got again like I said the thing that I always strive to do was to be in a Broadway show it wasn't to be on movies or in TV certainly wasn't to write anything. I was in a Broadway show, and I thought, well, time to get a new time to get a new dream baby you know and so I had always written and one of my best friends Zoe Kazan also writes we shared the same agent and I showed Zoe some this concept for the walker and she said you should show that to our agent at the time Jen Conowal who's a really now a great uh manager not mine but she's an amazing person and and so she was like oh I know a finance guy um, I love this idea. And we met with the finance guy and all of my best girlfriends wanted to do it. And they're all, you know, very schmancy. It's Zoe Kazan and Betty Gilpin and Carrie Mulligan play the three leads and yeah. Lily Raven, Aya Cash and Gabby Sidibe and all these people were in the show. Caitlin Fitzgerald. It was so it was like Heather Lind. So it was one of those things where everything, the stars really aligned and we I wrote it very quickly and we made it very quickly. I didn't direct it. Um, uh but I, and it was certainly kind of slapdash, but I think the, that there was really something there. And uh, 
we screened it in Los Angeles and uh, the Littlefield company, uh, Warren Littlefield, who used to be the head of NBC during oh, yeah. the must see right. TV years, who now does like Handmaid's Tale and stuff. He, so he saw, or someone from his company saw the show and they brought me in and they wanted to develop it into an actual TV show, which is crazy because this is the first thing I'd ever written. And all of a sudden I'm like going into development meetings with like the former head of NBC, who like greenlit like Golden Girls and Friends, you know? Yeah. And uh, so they were absolutely wonderful. We ended up at Sony with the project. And then uh, just over time, as the story goes, it just slowly started to fall apart. I think through no fault of anyone's really, we ended up at the tail end of a, of a pilot pitch season. Um, and most people had used up all their money by then. They were like, please come back next year actually with the same idea and let's get the ball rolling. And um, I didn't know that much about writing. You know, I didn't know that much about structure. I didn't know that much about much. And I thought I knew everything a little bit. So I was like, well, I'll just write it like this and then it'll be fine. And then you go through rounds and rounds of notes. And um, it was an exhausting, it was an exhausting way of getting to learn <laughs> how to write or what I even like to write. But uh, the Littlefoot company was so patient with me, but ultimately the show kind of fell apart. So when it did, uh, long story long, um, a, a girl named Christine D'Souza, who uh, has become a very good friend of mine, became an agent at WME, and she had seen the web series version of it at that LA screening. And she said, I'm at WME, um, and I'd love to, and I had let go of my agents as this, uh, as we, time had gone by with The Walker. And um, she was like, I'd love you to come over with us, and I'd love to sell The Walker just in the form that it's in today. Hmm. So we went to Refinery29 and they said we'd love to buy it as is. And it was the first show that they put on their website when they were doing tons of content. That's that's amazing. I, You know, it's to be friends with the the famous people that you are friends with. And you I feel like as long as I've known you, you've been very close with sort of very powerful uh, and successful um women in this business and I, I wanted to say like I remember like you had this great ability you had this great ability as I recall to say exactly what a person needed to hear oh. um, which was like for me too like I remember like on more than a few occasions of something about a performance of mine or about social stuff that was going on you know I feel like you are really good like you read people really well which makes you incredibly charming. Um, yeah. How aware are you that you're good at that? Um, I, I, I am aware. I'm aware that I have that, um, that I, but I guess I just don't know it any other way. You know, I yeah. think that when I was a kid, I was kind of a very difficult and angry child. And through lots of therapy, here I am. No, I, but I knew that, when I was on, like when I was happy or felt good that I had a weird kind of special dynamic quality that people are attracted to, but there was like mm -hmm. a very dark element to that. 
and um, I had a very sharp tongue and I really could figure out what was what was the meanest thing I could say to my mom, a family member, a friend, you know, and I and I would lash out at people like that. And I often thought of it as um, as a real weapon. And um, I was I eventually became quite ashamed of that part of myself. Mm. And I think as I grew older, I realized that that charm and that that vitriol were the same thing and that like my ability to see the part of a person you could hurt the most was also um somehow um compassion as well and if i could like use those powers for good you know that i could uh that that those things could work to my advantage so i i often just i guess i thought about it that way once i got my anger issues under control um ultimately i i guess i i am i am good at reading people but um i i am yeah i i don't know i i guess i don't think about it that that much yeah yeah it's it's become effortless yeah you just are you're just a you are just a charming i'm not gonna say debonair because i don't want it to sound everyone listening to this podcast right now is like not really (laughs) um (laughs) i just don't want to be accused of saying that you that it's another musical theater <laughs> oh my god do it do it what were you gonna say um uh so more recently you did you sold this show to netflix called bonding mm-hmm. which was based on a job that you had at one time as a bodyguard for a dominatrix yes that's true can you tell me like how did that come about and i'm not talking about the show i'm talking right. about the job. So yeah, so one of my best friends uh, from home had also lived in New York City, and um, I hadn't seen her in a very long time. And uh, we went through a, a walk. We went for a walk through Central Park, and um, she had she told me what she was doing to make money, and I was like, "Wow, that's that's crazy! I've never I'd never heard of that before," and. Um, uh, she she then later said uh, sometimes I need people to come with me to kind of be a witness um, or a protector if I do like these off-site jobs go to people's homes and you could make X amount of dollars for doing it with me and you know I, I had four jobs in New York I was selling concessions at the New York Theater Workshop you know I was you know uh, assisting a gardener taking up soul soil to like penthouses in new york i'm 21 years old so i uh so i i said yes sure i I would do that and it was very eye-opening i was also uh had just come out of the closet so i lived very with a sort of like deep what i thought was like my like deep dark secret but everybody always knew i was gay you know um but i sort of lived with this this version of my sexuality being me being ashamed of that and was thrust into a world where um people were not only not ashamed necessarily but they could name their desire so uh so clearly they Mm. they named it so clearly that they could pay for it and Mm. i think in retrospect i it really changed the way that i thought about my own sexuality because i was like wow they they aren't ashamed. They are like they're like telling someone and paying someone to help them like do the thing that they really want to do. That's not hurting anyone, 
and I'm not hurting anyone. And like, why can't I be that clear with myself? Yeah. Um, and so it was uh, deeply formative, strangely, but it turned but it, but at the time it was just a great party story. You know, I just told this really epic story of like the first time that it had ever happened. And it, it always got, it always got the crowds going. So after I had sold the Walker and then that fell apart, my manager, Dara said, uh, you know, what's next? And I was like, well, I have three good party stories. Let me tell them to you. And let me hmm. see if you think there's a show in any of them. That's and when I told her that she was like, let's do that. I said, okay, <laughs> let's do that. Now, uh, bonding features some explicit sexual content. Um, <laughs> is it? <laughs> there's no nudity. Well, it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're. You, you, it's it's a really good. Yeah, like it's explicit in the way that it's. Um, I would say intimate. Yeah, yeah. it's explicitly intimate that show. Sure. Yeah. It includes yeah. scenes where folks are getting peed on. There are scenes where there there was a scene I really in, thought was great with somebody getting tickled and crying out for their mother. Yes. Are these specific <laughs> experiences, or were they um, imagined? How how much did you see, Ryder? Well, so, <laughs> some of them some of them are specific, and but I would say most of them are not. Uh, imagine the circumstances are imagined, but the the reality of the situation was my girlfriend, who is um, she wanted to remain anonymous as she has her own uh, other life now. Um, she would tell me about a lot of these things, and when I was looking to develop the show, I. I um, I leaned on her very heavily to to help me navigate a lot of these uh, waters. Got it. Piss waters, you know. Right. But I'm also, you know, as a gay person, I think that people pee on each other more than you think. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that you assumed that I that I don't pee on people or that people don't pee on me. No, I mean, like, listen. I don't know I why I'm glad. To... I mean, it's fine I... if that's a thing. Yeah, please. Just try it out if you yeah. haven't already. It's a quarter hour series, and as The Guardian put it, the first season can be binged in under three hours. Good. Yes, I'm glad that that's that was that's a good review. That's uh, a good review. <laughs> it's not. It's. I'm trying to endorse it. I really, I really enjoy it. Uh, I really enjoyed it, and um, you know, you also wrote this recently. I think this was recently. You wrote this beautiful piece about being in love with a best friend who happened to be a woman yeah. and you have a line in bonding where the character Pete says it's cool to be by now. Um, <laughs> do you, do you think if we were all a little more honest about our sexuality that that would solve a lot of problems? Yes, but I know how difficult that can be, you know, but yeah. um but I think that even like honestly, it's cool to be by now. It's a, it's it's a it's a joke, but it's um it's also probably like a dated joke because people the kids are so much cooler than that now. You know, right? Pansexual. There's there's all kinds of there there there. I find labels were very helpful to me. Labels helped me construct an identity for myself that um, I was I was having trouble naming. And um, yeah. I think now labels seem passe and I think it's fucking cool. I wish right. I had more of that in me, you know, but yes, I do believe that, um, that 
there's there is a scale and that we are all on it and i do think that love and this is what i've explored in these in the walker and in bonding but that that um you you kind of can't you you really can't choose who you love and you can't choose you know in terms of sexuality you can't really choose what what how that defines you um but ultimately you can you can choose to accept it and everyone has some version of coming out you know it's not just it's not just for gay people anymore right. um everyone has some version of that whether it's telling your partner that i like this or you know this this nipple is sensitive but there's actually nothing on the other one so it's stop trying to twist my right nipple because there's <laughs> like literally you can't feel a fucking thing you know or whatever like and being able to be honest with someone like that and have them hear you um, and have an open dialogue is, is I think, well, really what what we should all be after. And I think that's a, a big part of the show. And that's why there is not a lot of nudity on it, by the way. It's like, it's a, it's a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. It's very colorful, it's very bright, it's fast and very bold and funny. But ultimately the show is uh, really about communication and, and, mm. and loving another person, even if you don't really know how or why you do. Yeah, absolutely. And so what is the what's what's next for that series? So we filmed the so um we filmed the second season and we finished it 2 weeks before we went into quarantine. I flew back mm. to Los Angeles and we did the edit in 2 weeks and then we started uh post remotely. Um and it's all turned into Netflix and hopefully we'll come out in fall winter this year. That's great. Yeah. Um what else? Uh, what so? What else is on the horizon for you? What else are you working on? Are you working on anything else, or is that you, your plate is pretty full? That it, well, now I'm trying to. I'm I'm writing some some other things at uh, at the moment. You know that uh, that I'm I'm working my way through. But also, I I hope that uh, you know people like season two of Bonding, and we get to do another one. I would love to do one more. And um. Yeah, I, I, that's that's sort of where I'm at. You know, I'm lucky because I get to act and I get to write and direct. I mean, I never thought I would get to do any of these things, really. And somehow I stuck it out long enough to get in there and people trusted me to do things that I'd never done before. Before I directed the first season of Bonding, I'd never directed anything in my entire life. And I just said, I know how to do this. And they said, okay. Yeah. So they let me. I'm and I'm. I I couldn't be more like in. I'm, I'm dumbfounded. You know that this has all happened this way. I like the directing on it a lot. What was your um, where like when when you'd get a directing assignment for your first project? I mean, I feel like I would buy every like Tashin book on Stanley Kubrick and like all the 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 the, the, the sort of like the the legends and just right. Like, frantically be looking at all the pages for like how do you set up a shot and and you did it i thought really really well um did you panic i mean how much panic went into directing no i'm i'm very i'm a very delusional egotistical person so i was not panicked at all (laughs) i thought I i thought i was supposed to do it i really genuinely i'm i i hope this doesn't come off um, as as idiocy or like uh, insane, but I genuinely knew that I should do this, and I thought that this was my 
I thought that I maybe started as an actor to finally get me here to directing, which took a lot of the things that I think I do pretty well and put them together in this way. So did I do a bunch of research on, you know, what lens, what da da da, you know, like, no, not, not really. I interviewed a bunch of people um, to be the DP, to do all yeah. the, to do all the things. Uh, Nate Hertzler is our DP, who's amazing. He's like my right hand man. We do everything together. And I, the first time that we had a meeting, I said, "Hey, listen, I've never done this before. I don't know the word that we're gonna that that is the right word. You should tell me that word when we come across it because I'd love to know because I am a sponge and I want to learn. But ultimately." I'm the first person who's going to admit to you that I know what I want. I just don't know how to get there. And we have to talk about that together. Yeah. Um, so I think you come at it like from a, from a, the, the, the standpoint of a humble, um, a humble uh, uh, learner. Yeah, totally. I think like one of the things that, um, I liked was that like I mean I liked how the shots were set up but also I liked there were moments where you would hold on the main two characters um, I feel like there were a few of those moments where you're not cutting away these are two people making direct eye contact yeah and they're and we just get to and it's a 15 minute episode and you're spending all these seconds with these people connecting with each other in a simple moment, but it never, the pace never really feels slow. Yeah. There's, in I mean, that's, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a highly cinematic thing to do. And I, you know, we didn't make the show originally for Netflix. We made it for another company and Netflix. Um, we went to can to the television series. We got into their first version of mm -hmm. the television version of can and it was screened there. So we had like some buzz around us when we came back to Los Angeles and a bunch of networks called and said, how do we redevelop this show? We made it for not a lot of money. And they're like, how do we redevelop this show for this network or this network or this network? And then Netflix called and said, we love the show. We don't want to talk about season one. We'd love writer to come in and pitch a season two. And I was like, what, what? So wow. I walked into Netflix and they, you know, all the things they're like the color story, your shots, the, the, the all the things that I really, people would never had not yet said to me, you know, cause they're like, wow, it's great. You know, that's, this is very exciting. Um, and they really had watched it and, and kind of received what I was trying to do and sometimes failing at, but at least trying to do. And um, they said, we don't want to change it. We'd like to buy it. And um, let us hear your thoughts about moving forward with the show with like another season. So once the show came out and it was a surprise smash, um, they called and said, so let's do that season two. So the, that all goes back to these shots, which is that I knew when we made it initially that I wanted to be as cinematic as I could. I wanted to hold on, uh, on single takes, you know, to really let the characters live. We don't have a lot of time and it's hard to communicate chemistry and friendship on camera if you're cutting back and forth between people. And yeah. if you let them just live in the frame and you trust the actor and you trust the writing, um, ultimately sink or swim, you're going to see whether they've got that chemistry or not. And luckily they did. They're incredible. Those two actors, uh, Zoe Levin and Brendan Scannell, who are just, yeah. they, they make the show what it is. And, and, um, I'm, 
but we wanted to make it as beautiful as we possibly could. So we were very particular about setups because we didn't have a lot of money. So I always said, you know, to the actors that this is your, this is the box that you're living in. If it says run in the script, you can't run because this is the box, because this is the, 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 the frame that we've dressed. So ultimately run in your mind, hmm. you know? Hmm. Yeah. Did your did your acting sensibility like does it help with those those particular kind of moments? Yes, yes, absolutely. And I'm um, I I love directing actors uh, because I think I understand that what they are going to bring to it is better than I think than what I ever could have thought about it. So when they come to set, I don't tell them a bunch. I just say let let me see it. And they show it to me and then we talk about it a little bit and I usually take them aside and talk to them by themselves. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I want very much for them to feel that they are um, artists making something, not that they are trying to do what I tell them to do. So, yeah. Nice. Now, when you're when you're doing Barry with that group of folks, um, do you guys do acting warm ups? Do you guys like. <laughs> Like no. how much class happens when you're there with Henry Winkler? Well, so the first the first day we ever met, they after we did the first read through, we did a rehearsal read through. We did a read through with HBO the next day, but we did this rehearsal read through, and then they split the they split the show into half. So the all the mob people went into another room and did <laughs> nice. some improvs about that and then all of the actors and henry stayed in the room that we were in and henry um did an act we did an acting class with henry winkler this is the first day i've ever met so him cool you know and it was uh and these are all these incredibly funny like real people i think the other thing is that everyone in the show is like has been working or trying to work for a very long time. So there's there's no entitlement. It's a bunch of people who are so grateful to have the job yeah. and really love really love other actors and and having and having like a communal experience. So we did that first acting class and then from that point on we haven't done any of that really, but we do, again we do rehearse and improv and do that kind of stuff. Well, Ryder, it's always a pleasure chatting with you. Um, okay. You're so, <laughs> you're so fun to talk to. Oh, my God. Uh, I am. I'm thrilled for all of your success. Thank uh, you. Thank you for doing this. Oh, thank you, Claude. And, and I you wish you I wish you continued success oh, thank you. and safety and good health. You too. You too. And I just want all your listeners to know that Claude uh, is in all the years that I've known him, and I think I've told you this every time I've seen you since, is my internet password. I mean, not my password, my, uh, what is it? My law, what, you know, what's it called when your internet has a name? Your, it's Claude. Your, 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 your username for your devices is my name? Yeah, did you not know that? I, it's I mean, if I it's did- It's because I, mean, it's, I bought, I, I bought a buckhead from a consignment store in, um adams when we oh were my first God. doing oh, yeah i do and i named that. it claude so yeah. claude has been with me through ever since whenever we did <laughs> williamstown together and my internet is named claude after oh my God. after you that's so touching so and also go. 
estranging at the same time. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> well, you're dead to me, you know? <laughs> well, there you have it. My conversation with writer Doyle, a big thank you again to writer for doing it. I hope you all enjoyed it. Before we move on to our second interview, I'm going to take another opportunity to ask you all to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're getting your podcast from today. We've got more incredible interviews with Tembi Locke and Vinny Chibber coming next week. Remember to subscribe to our Patreon to get all our extras with Chris Pine, Melissa Fumero, Baron Vaughn, and our Quarpod series with Chantal Tui, Christine Woods, and Sarah Paxton. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash things are going great for me. If you like what you hear so far, please give us those five-star ratings. Leave us a nice comment. We so appreciate all your ratings, reviews, and kind words, and we want to keep bringing you these great episodes. Next up is Elna Baker. We talk about going to high school and college together. The time we got detained and interrogated at the UN building in New York City, Elna reminded me that we are banned from the building for life. (laughs) We also talk about her memoir, The New York Regional Mormon Singles Halloween Dance, her recovery from COVID, and how to prepare in case you get the virus. Here now is me speaking with my best friend and my senior high school prom date, the wonderful Elna Baker. So, all right. So, first of all, earlier this year, you were on an episode of High Maintenance on HBO. Yeah. Congratulations. I, I really like that show. Oh, I love that show. It's so funny. And so, was that your television debut? I think I've done tiny things, but yeah, that was my television debut. So, and I was, was- just myself. So, it wasn't really acting. Yeah, you were great. The episode, uh, actually featured you in your day job, which is as a producer of the now Pulitzer Prize winning public radio show, This American Life. Isn't it cool I get to say that I've won a Pulitzer? It's amazing. I mean, I didn't totally. I was part of the staff and the two producers who made the story that won or who we technically say won. But I think I could say it on like a hinge date. (laughs) (laughs) How are those? How are those hinge dates going? I just started to try to date again. Uh, it's interesting. I feel like I'm uh, I'm a different person than I last was when I was dating. And uh, so I feel like it's uh, a really different experience. How often do you find that you're a different person? Is it does that every year? Is it? Uh, I think I, I, I have this friend, Henrietta, who's like 96 and she she once said this thing that really affected me, which is that she looks back at her life at all the people she was and they are like distinct people. And she, and I asked her who they were and mm. she kind of went through them. And it, it did sort of line up like decade to decade. You know, it was like uh, she was a journalist um, in Latin America when she was in her 20s. And then she was a mother and she was married, you know, and, and that was her whole mm. identity. And then, you know, after her husband died, she had this other identity. And then she she became a person who worked in theater. And that was her whole identity. Hmm. And then she left theater and she became a visual artist. And that was her whole identity. And and they, they are almost like reincarnation within this one lifetime. You're just totally reborn. And I can say I, I've filtered through some very strong characters. I would say... M- I'm I've lived as very different people within the lifetime I've lived so far. And you've known a lot of those people. Yeah, I mean, I think that I always like 
I think of myself that way too, but I worry about whether or not there's a it's it's a means of distancing yourself from taking full ownership of. There seem to be a lot of conversations where people say, you know, um, people are who you show them you are, and I think that you know. So I wonder about. I'm constantly asking myself, like, am I escaping something from earlier in my life? I think also because my life has, I've moved around a lot and you have too. So, it, I mean, physically, just uh, location wise, as just one aspect of our lives. So when you have that experience of going to different schools as you're growing up and, and sometimes in different countries, which you and I have both had, um, there is a, it does easily feel like you're sort of now I'm this person at this place. Right. Yeah. And I think what you're asking is like, am I hiding out in these new identities from like right, dealing right. with the root issue? And I will say like, I think to be specific about some of my identities, like I think they're, they're like, I was, you know, I once existed in the world as like a fat woman. I, I like, that was my identity. I then I lost 120 pounds and the way I exist in the world and the way I'm treated or looked at is incredibly different. So I actually feel like a fish who's in like swimming in totally different water. And then like I was Mormon and the way I perceived the world, like the narrative as I walked through the world was like Satan was tempting me. Everything was a test. Like when I got on the subway, if I saw an attractive man sitting across from me, I was like, oh, that's, you know, Satan and is helpers are trying to encourage me to be sexual and I have to stop, you know, now I just see a hot guy on the train. Like, like the way I like perceive and actually narrate my life is so different than it was when I was Mormon. But I think, yeah, but, but I think what you're saying fundamentally, like, like I think the, the root stuff is usually like attachment issues from early childhood. Like it, it can, just because you've changed your settings, just because you've changed the way you think doesn't mean that the behavior won't just like try on a new costume and appear in a different right. way. So like I I battle shame. I've always had like major issues with shame. And no matter what new persona I've taken on, shame just comes in a totally different form. Right. That I think is. Yeah, I think that's in part the question I'm asking. Yeah. And I also wanted to know what else do you find is actually consistent through all these uh, people identities? (laughs) Is there anything else? (laughs) Like, I'm like, well, shame is consistent. No. Uh, What else is consistent? Um, Having a sense of humor is totally consistent. I would agree. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, What was the story that you told me once about getting out of going to church and the turning out or like, Oh yeah. So, so with Mormonism, (laughs) you have to wake up before school and go to like basically Bible study, but it's book of Mormon and Bible study. And it starts at 6am and I am not a morning person. So you have to get up by five to get ready for school to drive there, to get there by six. And I was just dragging my feet to do it because you do it from freshman year until your senior year. And so freshman year, as I started, Tina, who, you know, my older sister, who's like, she's a lawyer Mm. now. She's very responsible. She's such a do-girder. She just always does the right thing. She had, she was two years older. So she'd been waking up every morning for two years going to this. And I, I, now that it's my turn, she wakes me up and I just immediately start like 
being such a bitch to Tina every morning. I'm just like, I'm basically trying to annihilate Tina's faith so she stops wanting to go, so she stops having to wake me up. So I I try really hard to just basically ruin Tina. Three months in, that doesn't work. So then I'm like, okay, I got a new new tactic to not have to wake up early. So I, I realized I could sneak into Tina's room at night and unplug her alarm clock and plug it back in, and then she wouldn't wake up in time. But then Tina started like, I don't know if she totally caught on, but she started like, locking the door. So I was like, I can't do that. And then I realized that the power, uh, like, you know, you open that little box and the power switches. The thing for the whole house was actually in my bedroom. And so oh I would God. stay up. And there are five kids in my family. My, you know, I, my, my dad has a job. Uh, my mom, like, would uh, do substitute teaching. Like, they, everyone had responsibilities. But I would stay up till, like, one or two in the morning when I knew everyone was asleep pull the power switch and in the morning it was basically like that scene in home alone where they're running to get to the airport the morning my dad because you're one of many kids yeah yeah every kid is late for school my dad's late for work everyone's screaming running and i would just be like sitting it'd be like you know 10 or 11 i'd be sitting in my room smiling like i got the best night's sleep and then it escalated because i knew i couldn't do it that much or i would be caught so i would just but of course eventually i started to get greedy and i would do it um like at least once a week. And then my parents hired an electrician to come look at the house and they like spent money on like rewiring the, and then, um, and then they also bought battery powered alarms. And so uh, they, I couldn't do it anymore. Oh my God. That's so funny. That's so great. Is that person still with you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say that that person, the the manipulative, selfish one, I think that's the strongest character who's made it through everything from being married to being divorced. Um, yeah, that oh that one. Uh, that that I mean that one. I do think. You have, is do you have an Do you room. have a name for that person? Oh, you know, I actually kind of do. I I realized, um, like, because uh, I had been working a. I work with a monk named Sokuzan, uh, who I've been working with for like five years. And when you are working on certain things, I'll like Skype with him. So I Skyped with my monk when I was, I, I spent several months, uh, I took a sabbatical from This American Life and I spent several months and my entire purpose for those months was to look at shame and really get to the bottom of how much shame has been uh, secretly driving all of the destructive choices in my life. And so as I was like doing all this work and research and trying to understand that for this thing I've been writing, I talked to my monk about it and he was like, well, you can't look at shame without looking at pride because they're two sides of the right. same coin. And I yeah. and I was like, that, sorry, that doesn't sound like me. I don't, I, I just have shame. I have no pride. That's crazy. I just don't behave like a prideful person. And then uh, only recently I started to actually see, like, I'm. A, it's about half and half. There is so the name for that character is the queen. She's just like okay. She hates working. She hates like lifting a finger. She doesn't know why Evan isn't just waiting on her. I mean, and that's I don't behave like that in the wor- world. But like the fussiness that I will feel sometimes is because there's this character in me that's just like, why am I not a queen? <laughs> appropriately named um well so i wanted to ask you so you so now part of your job is interviewing people um typically as part of an audio essay format is that what you would call it yeah i guess so i don't know we call it stories 
Yeah, sure. <laughs> you've, uh, you've, <laughs> Audio essay. Hey, look, I'm just trying to make the. I'm just trying to satisfy the queen here. Um, <laughs> you've become you've become an expert interviewer. Do you, do you start with a premise and then do you seek to confirm it, or do you find out what the story is in process and then change direction accordingly? Is it about fifty fifty? Mm, I mean, usually. Usually, I mean, it depends, but for the most part, I've done some sort of a pre-interview or I've been pitched a story, so I know what the arc of the story is. Yeah. And then I'm making that story. Sometimes it'll be more reporting like in the field and then that you're much more on your feet, but you still are using a structure or a roadmap to follow. And then things can totally shift or change, but at least you know like what you want and what you're looking for. So it's not so amorphous. And um, what, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I mean, for me, I tend to like map it out. And uh, I know, if, especially if I've done a pre-interview, I know like I have a really good memory. So I know what moments I want to like hmm. make sure that they tell me that were the most exciting right. or got me the most curious, like a well-told story. And then, so I'll lead, I'll have questions that lead to making sure I get that tape. But then I also have like things I've thought about after about like, well, what motivated that? How did that make you feel? Like, what did you want? That are kind of theories that I run by the person. And usually that's where the new like tape for the interview comes from, where it's unexpected mm. for both of us. And then that'll lead to like just conversation and, and uh, often like, you'll feel as you're listening to an interview when both sides are totally engaged and, and surprised like that, that energy comes across. Okay. That's great. That's really fascinating. And so, and do you look for, um, is emotion a big part of what you're looking for? Is it, or is that one of those elements that you think, oh, this is a great moment that we got. Um, do you look for change moments when people talk about what changed in their life? Is it that kind of... Oh, are those uh, yeah. I mean, you... when I when I look at a story, it's like, it, it is like, uh, like beginning, middle, and end. What did the person want? What did they actually need? And, you know, at what mm. point do they sort of realize, like, in, in pursuit of getting what they wanted, like, I made this choice, then I did this, then I did that. And that led to this. All these unexpected things start to happen to them. And as those yeah. unexpected things happen to them often, what they want shifts as they begin to, to realize, like, the root of the problem or what's really going on. And so as I track the story, I look at, like, who they were at the beginning and who they were at the end and, and what changed. And usually I like to know, like, what the most, like, like the i i structure or i build the story once i know what the kind of climax or epiphany of the story is that helps me understand like uh where to begin like the whole story mm. is building up to making sure that moment we understand all the emotional stakes we understand the realization and so uh i do tend to uh like take that moment for me is the most important moment for understanding how to structure the story. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I feel I'm trying to go about this and I think in a similar way. Uh, but yeah, I was just curious and I think that's really helpful for folks who, who are interested in, 
in storytelling in this in 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 that format in a video format which i think there's a lot of work now for this kind of there seems to be a lot of work now for video essays audio mm. essays uh podcasting etc you you've you've been doing this for quite some time yeah i mean i've been at this american life for about 10 over 10 years and uh i the other thing that i think is really central that i learned from ira is that uh, a person will not engage with your story until they care, until they essentially like mm. relate or see themselves in your shoes. And the best way to get somebody to care or put themselves in your shoes is for them to for you to really clearly spell out what what you want. And usually there's a level of like feeling or emotion uh, that's driving why you want that so bad. And that makes us care. And once we care, then we put ourselves, empathy kicks in and and we think like, well, if I were them, what would I do to get that? And then as you do it, we might be thinking, ah, that's exactly what I would do. Or we might be thinking like, oh my God, that is a hilarious like leap. Like if I wanted, like it's so, character is revealing based on like the choices that you make. So, like, one person to find love might do one thing that's fairly straightforward. And, like, so many of my stories in retrospect involve, like, me wanting to find love and me doing the most batshit crazy thing that doesn't make any sense to get it. But okay. but in my mind is totally, like, the next logical step. And so that's where the comedy comes in is, like, you're like, well, I was on board with finding love, but <laughs> I don't know if that's the right way to do it. But you also like you you relate because the the thing that I want is universal. We all want love. We want to be seen. We want intimacy. We want connection. And so if you we sure do, yeah. if if you get people on board with that like thing that they because I, I in fact I just told this story over the weekend and um, you know one of the people listening like in the beginning of the story I talk about you know being Mormon and wanting and it's about like something I did for love as a Mormon and the person who was hearing the story like grew up with no religious background whatsoever but they were like I totally relate because I was a late bloomer so people will weirdly Mm, find their way into your shoes even if it's highly specific and it's not an experience that that they personally lived uh in fact often the more specific you are about like what's actually happening inside of your head and what you're feeling and the more vulnerable you are about what you're going through and like the more you kind of uh, are honest and expose that often I would say shame or or things that you hate like the thing that you don't want to admit out loud when Mm. you say that that's the thing that everyone's like oh my god I feel that too I find that in yeah. my work, that's what I get the most response to are the things that I was like, I can't believe I'm saying this, but it's it's actually the truth. And if I don't say it, no one will understand why I'm making any of these choices. So on your episode of High Maintenance, there is a moment when one of your fellow producers is recording their husband without them knowing it. Yes. Does that happen? Are the producers of This American Life going around recording people and then telling them afterwards that they were recorded? <laughs> no. And actually, that was one of the big like things that the staff Got were like, uh, I don't know if this is like, is this the correct representation of the show? But here's the thing. That episode was actually based on me and on an experience where I recorded my uh, then husband, Mark. And... Uh, Ben, who made High Maintenance, it was a 
it was a part of it was the This American Life episode uh, about um, it's called Tell Me I'm Fat. And it started with a piece by Lindy West and it had a piece by Roxane Gay and a story by myself about this transition where I had lost a tremendous amount of weight and been treated differently in the world. And as I was making that episode, I was really like digging into stuff I'd never really thought about or talked about. And some of it had to do with like the ways that uh, like men treated me differently or men being attracted to me. And part of it, I had read this book, um, uh, Diet Land, and the book had really inspired me. And I wanted to right. to to kind of tell the audience about what I'd gotten from this book. So I kept um, trying to write a paragraph about what that book was about. And every time I told the paragraph in different edits, they, everyone was just like, it's just, it feels like a weird book report out of nowhere. So I kept trying to make hmm. it shorter. And then I was with Mark and I started just telling him what the book was about. And I was telling him so clearly, like it was so succinct and just like conversational that I was like, oh my God, can I record this? So I took my phone and I recorded it. And I don't even normally do that. I think this might be the first time I ever did that. I took my phone and I recorded it. The recording of me explaining like what the book is about finishes. And then uh, it very quickly leads into a conversation about how uh, and my husband was like, he's just like a, like he was a captain of a football team. He was just like a kind of all American, traditionally like handsome man. And yeah, yeah, I, you remember, uh, sure, yeah. And I remember this recording. I remember hearing this on the radio. And so I say to him, like, I say, but you would never have loved me, um, like if I was fat. I can't remember exactly what I said. But he acknowledges that that's true. And it was really, I wasn't expecting him to be that direct or honest about it, even though I I think a part of me deep down in my heart had been afraid of that or suspected that that could be true. And so Mm. you hear in this recording, like me, like taking that in. And it's just like, it's really a heart, it's hard for me to listen to it because it's really heartbreaking. Yeah. And, it is a little hard, but yeah, yeah. I, that's how I, I felt too, listening to it. Yeah, and um, and I also like, in a sense, he kind of. I think it was hard to put that out there because I was worried that he would be villainized um, for saying it. But he felt strongly, like, you know, a lot of men don't talk about this, and I think it'll open up a bigger conversation. And if this is my part in the conversation, I'm. I support you putting this recording because essentially like it was one of those accidental things where I recorded it. I wasn't in, I would never have just come up with like, now let me interrogate my husband about whether he would love me if I was fat. Like it just happened. And um, he gave me permission to use it. And we ended up, it it was like the end of the story. And so Ben, who, um, who makes high maintenance, when he had um, sort of originally conceived of the episode of High Maintenance, I, I think for him, a lot of it was about um, like mining your private life for stories and what that does and how does that like interfere with your life. And I think that probably had something to do with also, you know, Ben mining his own life as a creator in the way that we all do and grappling with yeah. like, at what point 
do you like let's say you have a story that happens with your family or your parents and it it so captures like a lesson that you think is like was a huge epiphany for you and you wish you could share with others but if you share it you compromise your relationship with the people you love the most and you risk like losing right. that relationship and so i think he was interested in in that as a concept or a theme as something he's explored in his own life and uh and so that's so he based that high maintenance episode off of the episode uh, of This American Life that I was in very loosely. Interesting. Okay. So, um, you. by the way, you're the first person in this whole series that I'm interviewing after I started rolling out our first season episodes. Uh, we threw up a trailer with your name on it because I, I knew we would make this one happen because even though you are very busy, typically with work, you're actually one of my best friend yeah if, that hasn't, if that's not obvious to people at this point um you're now the person on this show that i've known the longest some of the folks on here i met freshman year of college you and i met in eighth grade yep. uh in the uk at the american school um we went on to do high school plays together we did international honor drama week and things like that we also went to prom together um, and then we went to college together and mostly hung out a lot in alphabet city yep I have so many memories of, uh, I mean, I can tell you. So I have a memory of the first time I ever saw you. Like, or, or like, and it, ever? I don't know if it's the first time I saw you, but it was the first time, like, it was, we, we went on a school trip uh, to, like, you know, Norway. And uh, we were on this, like, drama trip together. And I just have a memory of, like, you from that trip. And I had the biggest crush on you I just like I had you did oh my god I totally on that trip I was like and I was so like awkward and not cool and uh you know braces and like uh you know fat and just like pining about you I remember pining but we were and then we became friends uh But then I th- I feel like in high school we came because then I moved away and then I moved back. You went away and then you came back. I remember when you I remember you from that trip and I do remember when you came back because I remember I was in a class with you and I was like oh I didn't I I was like you know this this person is back I didn't know if I, I to be absolutely honest I can't I'm probably I probably was like oh Elna's back but I cannot remember I do remember you being in that class and being like I know her but I think the thing about the art the high school that we went to was that people left all the time so it's not like you kept a person you know I, I wouldn't say that I kept many people sort of in mind because there was this always this thing that like somebody's their their whatever their parents did like that business was going to move them to another country that was typical in our school yeah it's like basically we went to an expat school yeah that's right so but i do remember i remember when you came back and i think you and i have spoken since and i think that you had said that when you did come back you had changed into some into kind of a new a new person maybe i don't know if i, I think when i i mean i remember coming back and it, it was really hard for me at first. Like I was, um, I was really lonely. I didn't really have friends, and I, I was of that. I think because of the way I, I mean, it, this has to do with personal confidence, but I also think there is a layer of like social judgment around like being friends with somebody who's fat. That I felt that I was like a liability for people to hang out with or be seen with, and that I felt a lot of judgment, and so people weren't like yeah. warming up to me. And so I would say for like at least the end of my junior year, I was really 
miserable. And then I came back a senior year and I don't know how I shifted it, but I just like, honestly, I think behind the scenes, I just tried to like work every person (laughs) so that I, uh, so that they were my friend. So I just would do a lot of one-on-ones with people. And maybe like a, like a poly, like glad handing like yeah, a yeah yeah just like found oh out God. what people like <laughs> wanted to talk about what their needs were like I was just super helpful and and honestly I think like some of it was having a sense of humor but I certainly like I worked everyone individually I felt like until like having me around in groups or socially like and maybe this has to do with honestly in retrospect my own comfort level because I can be yeah. shy in groups but one on one I I am able to like feel a connection or intimacy that like isn't I mean like I, I'm a, I've always been really afraid of uh, being seen whether I knew it or not which is like hmm. as a someone who's performed in front of big audiences like I think people would not expect that but uh definitely like for that it's like once I step onto the stage and I can't like leave the stage it's like I rip the band-aid off and I I have no choice but like yeah yeah right but being on camera and doing that kind of stuff has been excruciatingly hard for me because there's no do you you mean still to this day still to this day and I think I am getting better at it um but yeah I feel so much more exposed by the camera being there because there's not like a big audience or people to connect with so I just feel like like I'm someone is zooming in and and that that I'm there's no hiding out like you can see me that's right yeah we got into a bunch of trouble together at one time uh because one night god I just remembered this I'm not I'm not I'm not gonna protect you at all here this was at your (laughs) urging it was it was you said to me, hey, there's this garden or there's this museum that's yeah, over yeah. on the side I, of town. I would pass by this museum all the time on the First Avenue yeah. bus. And I would see okay. this statue of um, like uh, George slaying this dragon. And I was, and but I, I was always on the bus, so I never passed, walked by it because it was in Midtown. So I was like, I always wanted to go to this garden, Claude. Oh my God, no, no. Here's how it started. Claude took me to a play that he was like, it's going to be a really good play. Uh, he made up all this shit, like, I, you know, about how wonderful the play was. We sat in this play. It was the worst. It was like a one woman show about, like, I, like, like, just, you know, we've all been to that play. And it was. But wait a minute. You're saying, you said Claude. You're saying I took you to Yeah, a you show? took me to a show. You, you talked me into going to the show that you said was going to be amazing. Oh, and it was terrible. And it was terrible. Oh, and halfway through this show, this I told you, I hate you. And you were like, yeah, I lied. I just didn't want to go to this alone. I thought it might be terrible. I see what you're doing. You're talking directly to the audience yes. here. Yes. Okay. And so then. And you're commandeering this story. And I then. Love it. Okay. And then you said to me, because I kept poking you as the play got longer and longer. I think it was like three hours or something, four hours. I kept poking you, and you said, as soon as this ends, uh, we'll, I promise we'll, do we'll do whatever you want to do. Like, what's okay. your dream, right? So, like, then I spent like the second half of the play just thinking, Okay, Claude's going to do anything I want to do. What's the thing I want to do the most? And so as soon as it ended, I was like, there's this garden I've always wanted to go to. I've never passed by it. It's in Midtown. And so you're like, fine, I'll go to this garden with you. So we get to the garden. And there's a tell them where the garden is. Well, I didn't know. So at this point, the garden is just along the water. There are um, 
there's a, a shortish fence. The fence wasn't that long. We, I gotta, I gotta jump in here to tell the folks this because this, you did this, say you were like, I think this is the United Nations. <laughs> so it's next to the United Nations building. So we don't know if it's part of the United Nations building or not. <laughs> but I, but I saw it and immediately was like, I think this is part of the United Nations. And I was building. like, No, okay. that's the United Nations. Continue. There's flags. It's a build. Bi- this is a park. That's the United Nations. And you're like. I think it's the United Nations. And I was like, oh, please, look at this fence. This fence, you could hop this fence. This is maybe two years after September 11th occurred. Yeah. So I'm like, if this were the United Nations, the fence would be so much higher. There'd be security. And I'm like. It was shockingly very little uh, amount of a physical barrier. It was literally a loose chain that was knee level that we stepped over. No, no, no. There was a, we kind of had to pop over something. But yeah, it wasn't it was, much. Yeah, it wasn't much. It was like okay. we hopped a fence. So I was like, I was like, if this is the United Nations, someone would stop me from doing this. And then I hopped over the fence and then I'm on the other side and I'm like, eh. <laughs> and then you're like, fine. And you like hopped over the fence after me. And then we like walked through this garden and there were like really pretty statues. And then we kind of like you could see the waterfront. It was nice. It was nice for I think. Yeah, it was nice. Maybe we were there for like 15 minutes or something, right? <laughs> we were there for, I mean, maybe 10 minutes because once we got down to the water and we were looking out at that, I think that PepsiCo sign on the other side of the Hudson, we, that we there were flashlights on us. Yeah, multiple flashlights. <laughs> and what happened? What do you remember happening next? That security, they were like... United Nations security. United Nations security. Uh, we had broken into the United Nations. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, and I was like the untrustworthy narrator Elna Baker so I at this point I still think I can handle this so I'm like oh no no sorry this is a huge misunderstanding we thought this was a park Uh, we're now learning from you that it's the United Nations we'll go thank you and they were like no you've broken into the united we have to bring you into the building and like interrogate you and i was like oh no 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 you don't have to do that because it was a misunderstanding and um so they take us into the united nations and then they took and i am like i'm still sort of like a deer in headlights a little like oh this isn't a big deal though right they'll get it and you are like white as a ghost and you are like basically like, I hate you, Elna. Like, ha- like you were so afraid, but also mad at they, me. They took us underground in an elevator, mm-hmm. which is fucked up. Like, <laughs> you never want to go underground in any most elevators, <laughs> let alone at the UN building. <laughs> they brought us into a bullpen <laughs> down there and sat us in a cubicle. They separated and- us too. Did they fucking separate yeah, us? Yeah, they separated us. And I'm sitting there going like, I wonder if they know that I'm Middle Eastern. Like, I was so out of my... I was like, this is not... There's no way out of this that is going to be good. We're going to have a file on us uh, forever for doing this. Yeah. Uh, and then they... I think they asked us questions separately, and then they did ask us questions together, too. Uh, That's what I remember. I remember us, but but now that you say they separated us, I guess I could see it. Yeah. Yeah, they separated us at the beginning, and then we came back, and I think there was just a moment. I do remember a whispery moment where you're like, "I'm like, I'm sure we'll be fine," and you're like, "I'm Middle Eastern. I don't you know I'm Middle Eastern?" (laughs) 
Yeah, and I of course it's like nobody's gonna know that from my name or my <laughs> fucking face. But like, that's I was I was terror. It says it does say something about how wh- how I was feeling about being Middle Eastern at that time well, in New York City. How were you feeling about it? Bad. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, I mean that's a, you talk about shame. I mean that's a thing I think that I was feeling about it, and um, you know, but I mean. We were we were very lucky that they nothing ever came of that afterwards. Now you, but you had you were doing other things like that. Well, no. You, so hold on. You have to the 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 end of the story. Oh, there's a, is, there's a kicker. There's okay, a kicker, which is that they they we were there for like maybe an hour and a half, and then they they did let us go. But as they were escorting us out, they said that uh, our names are on file and we are never allowed in the United Nations again. Holy shit, is that true? Yeah, that's what they said. I mean, that makes sense. I don't, I don't know if it's them. true. I've never tried to go back, but I've also never gone back because I feel I'm the, blacklisted. So The United States leads the world in data collection. We are definitely on a list. But we saw that park with that dragon. <laughs> I hate you all that. No, I'm just kidding. I don't at all. You took stories like these and started winning the moth grand slam with them am i right yeah i had like i hadn't known there was like storytelling or like a world or like these are i just told stories to friends really and then uh yeah uh heard that uh, someone eventually was like oh you mean like the moth and i was like i don't know what that is so i went to the moth and just because i'd been like telling stories uh and actually it's so funny that like earlier when i was saying like you said like glad handing like i was like working people Hmm. Yeah. In high school. Actually, I honestly truly believe that the only reason I know how to tell stories is that that was what I used to make friends. So I would tell people funny stories and that would like make them see me as a person, I think. And then mm, all yeah. their kind of their hesitancy to be friends with me because I like was like a social liability would kind of they saw me I I humanized myself by telling stories I think and so uh, I had been practicing or telling stories to people over and over and over again so when I did the moth I ended up like winning or (laughs) I ended up winning it's such a dumb idea that you can win for telling stories but um, not to well but it's very fun it's it the whole process of watching the moth is very fun and this was over at the New Yorican cafe which is yeah historic. and this was like early early days of the moth so I kind of got into yeah. the beginning of the moth in in the world of storytelling and that's is kind of what launched my career because then what ended up as I recall you you had a day job at Nobu yeah hosting and there was there had been some people I think from L magazine who had seen you at a moth and then they came in to your day job and you because you have great hustle and you always have you used to have a philosophy as I recall of just saying like just ask for things and see what happens and the these folks came in and you pitched your story as an article and then you wrote that article am I right yeah and then that that article got me a book deal so it was very right yeah and I but you know I I would say like I have great hustle, but it's like I think anyone like it was certainly that moment like they came in. I recognized them. Well, actually, they came into the restaurant and first they recognized me and they were like, oh, we saw you at the moth. Like, where are you sitting? Uh, yeah. And I was like, and oh, like, I'm I'm, I'm sitting people like <laughs> I work here. I'm not like what you think I am. And so then I went back to like sitting, you know, hostessing. And then um, I just kept thinking I was like, you know, I should tell them like I have an idea 
for a yeah. piece. And so I, but I was so nervous, you know, and it is like, I feel like there's so many movies where it's the scene where somebody is like at a cafe and they see, you know, James Franco and they have a script with them and they're like, I gotta, yeah. uh, uh, and they're like sweating or whatever. In fact, there's a Seinfeld episode where Kramer does that to um, uh, Fred Savage, where he gives him his script. Uh, and it's really, really funny. But it is That's that, funny, it's bro. that sort of premise where you like, you're putting yourself on the line. Fred Savage. And, uh, and like, I don't think that comes naturally. Like, you made it sound like the thing like that comes naturally to me. It does not come naturally to me. Like to to ask for opportunities. And so, if you're a person that it doesn't come naturally to, like, like that doesn't mean like you can still get yourself to do it. You just sort of have to like jump off the the diving board. Right. No. Sure. To say it's easy is probably not the right, but there's sometimes there's a voice inside you that just says like you have to maybe yeah. is that yeah and this it, it and also it felt like um it, I don't know I, it felt like a it, it's so hard to say like meant to be but it, it felt like the thing fell into my lap in a certain way where um if I if I didn't advocate for myself. There, it, it's like you know it's like when there's a clear moment in a relationship where like you could either tell someone you love them or like a clear moment where you could break up like like the this almost like the universe hands the script where this is the right moment to say the thing and you just yeah. feel it and so for yeah. me it felt like this is a moment handed to me where I could do this thing or not do it and uh, if I don't do it I'll be kicking myself so I have to do it and the result was your, you know, in a roundabout way, was your first memoir called The New York Regional Mormon Singles Halloween Dance. Yes. And uh, it talked a little bit about, or a lot about, um, some of the stuff we've already talked about, but also about dating life, right? Like it was a, there was a section, there were parts of the book that were, I think, really dedicated to finding love. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now so you are working on a follow-up novel is that right uh yes i mean i i i've written another memoir that i'm like i don't know man i have i wrote a lot i've written a lot and then i went i took a sabbatical from this american life to write it and i took about four months and i it i went so i <laughs> I went down to Mexico uh, to live on this horse farm in the middle of nowhere. And this was in like the end of February, like February 29th is when I left. And at the time it was like so extreme. I wasn't going to have internet, no cell service. I was basically like going to be dropping off the face of the earth to focus. And all my friends in New York were like, uh, I, uh, you just, you need a boyfriend. Like it's, you just need a boyfriend. Oh, like, like you're going okay. on this like soul searching quest. To, to what? To go down, to go down there with you? Is no, that no. They, no, they meant like, cause I felt like I was like, oh, okay. I, I was it. like, I need to understand what's truly wrong with me. I need to understand like what, what's going on. I want to like soul search. And the only way to do that is to drop off the face of the earth. And then all my friends were like, or get a boyfriend. Like you might just be lonely. <laughs> <laughs> and then I got there and a week or t- maybe two weeks later is when New York went into quarantine and all those same friends were yeah. like, how did you know? It was like, are you a witch? So I basically missed like, like I feel like what was going on in New York at the oh, time. Oh, and, and even what was going yeah. on in the world in many ways, because I was isolated on a rural farm in the mountains with horses. Like there was no, 
interaction. There were no masks. Like there was, I was alone. So uh, I missed, it's all, I feel like returning, I feel that such a strong sense of the world has gone through like such a trauma and everyone is like experiencing yeah. PTSD and the trauma is ongoing. We're still living in it. So yeah, I do feel like I kind of missed like a pivotal thing that happened to the whole world. We spoke around that time when you were down there working. And um, and then the next time we spoke was about being on this series. And you uh, had, in that period of time, you had gotten coronavirus. Um, and so you are the first person on this series who has had it. Hmm. And you are recovered now? I am recovered. But I would say, like, I am just barely feeling back to myself. And I think it took about eight weeks to get it out of my system. You, you said to me that you had also gotten typhoid fever. Is that true? Yeah. So I had salmonella and that led to typhoid fever. And then I also tested positive for like a couple parasites. And I was just really, really sick. And so oh I God. flew back uh, to go to the hospital for I'd sent my results to some doctors here and they were like, you need to come back to the US. So I flew back to go to the hospital. And when I got to the hospital, uh, I also tested positive for Corona. So a lot of like the severity of my symptoms or what was going on with me physically was uh, Corona and I hadn't known it. Um, I'm so sorry that you went through this horrible experience. I mean, um, I'm, I'm so relieved that you're okay now. Um, how comfortable are you talking about your experience with the with COVID? I, I'm totally comfortable talking about it. I think the thing that I, is help is is useful to know is that I also had typhoid fever. So, like, if if someone's listening to this with like an under, trying to understand the symptoms, like it's a little confusing of a case because yeah, it's yeah. A, a um, I, it's hard to say what was what, but I I can definitely talk about what I think was Corona and what, what it felt like to go through it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I would say, so I flew back, uh, went to the hospital and I had, a, I had assumed that based on how sick I was feeling that I would just be kept in the hospital. But, uh, I tested positive for Corona and uh, the results, like anything they could do for typhoid fever, my vitals were like n not severe enough that they felt they needed to keep me and they needed hospital beds. So there was no place in my mind. I was like, I'm flying home to be in a hospital because I could die. And then I got to the hospital and they were like, okay, now go back home and be like by yourself. And... Hmm. So th terrifying. that part was really terrifying because I just didn't know how sick I was and I didn't know what would happen to me. And uh, I also hadn't expected that I would have corona and there's all the unknowns that come with corona. And so I went home and I had uh, I started having like fever dreams where you kind of lose your sense of uh, I mean, it, it starts to it felt a little like like how I've heard a psychotic break described where I just hmm. had a dream where I lost like a sense of, I felt like I was losing my mind or something. And then I became very afraid that I, um, that I wouldn't get my mind back. And then I woke up from this dream and I called a friend and they kind of talked me down. And, um, and then I spent the next 21 days in isolation and just basically like every, everything that could come up with my immune system 
would just pop up. So it's like and and I have a friend who's a coronavirus specialist who's like a talking head on CNN. So I would <laughs> Facebook message him like new symptoms and and then I also had another doctor to talk to at the hospital. And I've never had an experience with doctors where everything you say, they just sort of shrug and they're like, could be. You're like, is this corona? Oh, God. Could be. Like it was, it's just, I mean, and that's because they just don't know. You you were like living in a, like in this total uncertainty. Mostly I was had severe nausea, which I hadn't known was a symptom of, of corona, but I had severe nausea, loss of smell, um, extreme achiness where like you couldn't get comfortable like your body just like yeah was so brittle uh and then uh exhaustion like where i would stand up and like have to sit down because i i, I passed out one time um and uh mostly it was just like uh weakness and kind of just like coming in and out of yourself you're just like sleeping it off but like like when you stood you felt like foggy and I didn't have any respiratory problems at all which was really reassuring and uh and but then like I started to get random symptoms which were just my immune system breaking down and one of them I got I like looked in the mirror and I had a reddish circle the size of an orange around my asshole and I was like what the fuck (laughs) And I, I was like, oh, okay. And I, it was one of those things where you're like, is that what my asshole looks like? Like, you just don't know. Oh, I don't God. spend time looking at it. But then you're also living in a world where everything is a symptom. Like, everything yeah. ends up being an actual symptom. You're not wrong. You're like, like, uh, like I had all these um, dots all over me, and I thought it was because I laid in grass. And then it was a rash from typhoid fever. So, like, every single thing that was happening to me was a symptom of one of the things I was going through. So I I see this. And I mean, and I, but I'm also like, I, maybe I'm, maybe that's just what, what assholes look like. I, and I just never knew. And, like, I did want to, like, call all my exes and be like, hey, sorry, I know we haven't talked in a year. But would you, you just, tell me what my asshole could you just describe like? my asshole? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I want this to be a blind. I don't want to tell you what I think it looks like. So just go, oh what does my asshole look like? And uh, so then I, I'm i panicking and I didn't want to Google it because I like sometimes when you Google things, you just spiral even more. So I, I my first thought was I messaged the, the coronavirus expert that's on CNN. And so then I was like, hey, this is a bit of an overshare. But um, I have a, a red... Uh, circle around my asshole the shape of an orange uh is that coronavirus <laughs> and you just wrote back like uh n- not that i know of <laughs> and i just <laughs> on top of everything else the shame of <laughs> the total shame and also i totally picture i know being like, i like fucking gross i like imagining him being on cnn and he gets like a phone alert and he looks down and there's like a somewhere an image of him going like Ugh, uh. <laughs> um but um one oh of the God, things i'm so glad that there's humor in this, in uh, this har- har- harrowing story but uh i will say so the thing that um i like, I, I feel like it's hard to give people advice because coronavirus yeah. is so individual. But the thing that I yeah. I do think might be helpful for people to think about is that um, so that the second day was a day where I was like waiting on all these results. And I didn't know if if uh, I, I had severe like my liver tests were coming back abnormal and there were more things yeah. that could be wrong with me. And so I, I was in this like really like the panic of 
feeling like I, like I could die or something like, you know, and I was never... I, my, I'm so sorry that I didn't know this at the time. I, I feel horrible. Well, I think that's a big part of what what's happening to people as they go through this disease is like, like we're all so isolated that it's hard for us to even support each other or even know what's going on with one another. Mm. But um, and and again, like the part of this that was so hard was I was completely alone. Like I was, uh, and and so I call. I was really afraid, and um, I have a friend who who's who has been through the hospital process a lot and sickness a lot because his wife had cancer and um so I had the presence of mind to just call him and ask for advice and he said this thing that was so helpful which was like basically like there are things that you can control and things that you can't that are fears you know and so you're grappling with the fear of dying you're grappling with these things and you also have these other fears and just divide them on a list and see if there's any one of these fears that you can, like, create a backup plan for. So, like, one of my fears mm. was, uh, like, because of these fever dreams are coming in and out. And I, I don't think I was ever as sick as this makes it sound. But then the fear is, what if you are? So I had been afraid that I would something could happen and no one would know and I would be alone and my, yeah. my case would, like spike and no one would know so I had my friend um, Aisha agree to text me every hour and then I reached out to people in my building I'm not really close with anyone in my building but I found someone in the building who if Aisha texted and didn't hear from me she could call them and they would come knock on my door and just the very idea that if people like that I wouldn't be like going into some like and again (laughs) part of this has to do with I, I know nothing about anything that has to do with the body or like science so then you're like cardiac arrest if i go into cardiac i don't even like the part the lack right or a stroke or yeah yeah, the the lack of knowing which i don't even think those things happen because of typhoid fever or corona but this is where all your ignorance kicks in and you're just like the death could happen so i think one of the things that if you um it, it is wise or helpful now while you're healthy to put a plan in place for like things that you could prepare for if you do get corona and you are alone uh and you know and that involves like um like like i had to get a pulse oximeter but that took three three days to arrive so or i also had um like it, it attacks your immune system, and so there were things that, like, I kept getting yeast infections, or I kept like the oh the the, the ring around my asshole is when I get sick. I usually get was just was it was just the tip of the asshole. <laughs> it was um, the ring around my asshole is I usually get strep when I get sick. That's like an immune system thing for me, and so I got yeah. Uh, Anal strep, like strep, butt strep. I didn't know that existed. Oh, but my God. So oh my God. one of the symptoms <laughs> the of my, yeah, I mean, it really does. You're like, I am breaking butt down. Strep. I got butt strep. And oh. uh, so even if there are medications that like, like if you, because it's a blood disease. So it, it's like things are coming up that happen to you when your immune system breaks down. So if you know, like when I get run down and stressed out, I always get a sore throat or I always get this thing or the other thing. Like getting those like vitamins or medications on hand, like in advance again, like to to treat the the various exactly uh, symptoms. So you don't okay. have to wait yeah. for things to arrive. And then again, I am describing like a, a case of corona that isn't respiratory. So if it is respiratory, like yeah. 
this is a whole different scenario. I'm describing like the more flu-like symptoms of corona where it's just like you're battling it. But then the thing um, – and then also having like uh, knowing the people you can talk to, your support network, uh, like just having everything almost like like the way that 72-hour kits exist or people used to have like emergency – like phone trees at school before we had like phones to text and everything like having a system in place that's your backup plan for when shit hits the fan is something yeah. I, I wish I'd done in advance that that people can do now have doctors told you that your life will now forever be different uh no they have not said that but they've said um basically what they've said uh that they don't know so they just don't know, like, like, and that's the part that you just kind of try not to think about. And honestly, I'm at a place yeah. where I, I, I went back in. My liver numbers are still abnormal. They're not like as frightening. So I have to go back in, in next week uh, to get tested on that again to see if there's like permanent liver damage. Um, and uh, they also just don't know if if it's if it's going to be something like Lyme disease. Where you have flare-ups and then they go away. Uh, but I will say, like, for eight weeks, uh, that's what was happening to me. So it went on a lot longer than I would have expected, where basically I would have good days where I was, like, full of energy. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm back. I knew I could beat this disease or whatever virus. And um, then I would totally... It's like another wave. I would totally crash i would be bedridden i would yeah. just not be able to get out of bed for and i knew the difference because it would essentially be defined by me laying in bed being like i should go to the bathroom i should yeah i should really get up and go to the bath and you just do that for like an hour that's how you know something's different if you're just lying in bed telling yourself to do something that's how you know you have no energy uh hmm. and um and then the other thing that really concerned me and I feel like so relieved now about is that I had a lot of anxiety um and I felt like in this kind of fight or flight mode where I I was just on edge and feeling anxious all the time and I I I've like I have had issues with depression before but I've never had issues with severe anxiety like and I started to wonder if that was like the new normal for me or something. And uh, I have read, and I think this is true to my experience, that uh, you can experience anxiety as a result of corona. I just want to say I'm so sorry that uh, that you went through all of that. And and I feel horrible that I wasn't aware that it was going on at the time. Um, uh, But thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing all of that. You're welcome. You're like, thank you for sharing about the orange on your asshole. <laughs> all of that. Thank um, you for sharing all of that. Maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe not that part. Um, no, it was great. Well, listen, you're my oldest and my most interesting friend by a mile. Um, <laughs> you've always been ahead of the curve in terms of where the culture is headed. You have incredible confidence in your projects and your convictions. I often look to your career and have done for a long time as a kind of a guide. Um, thank you for doing this. Oh, that's so sweet. It's like a really cool thing to hear. Thank you.
Um, See, I wrote some stuff down. Some of it's all right, right? Yeah, look at you. You're good at this. Please, please stay healthy. I will. I'll stay alive. To everyone out there, if you listened all the way to the end of this ninth episode, you deserve a thanks on our social media because this episode was long. Message us on Instagram at things are going great for me and we'll give you a shout out in our IG stories. Give us a subscribe in those sweet high star ratings, a nice comment, and we'll return the favor by bringing you even more quality content in the future. Stay tuned because we've got just one more episode left in season one, including interviews with Tembi Locke and Vinny Chibber. Our sound engineer is Christopher Frontiero, and our series composer is Cormac Bluestone. Our series graphics editor is Dan Olszewski. You guys are champs for sticking around this long. Hit us up on Instagram. Let us know if you enjoyed this episode. Oh, by the way, we also have an email available on there. So give us your thoughts. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. See you next time.